Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. There's actually more people here than I expected. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to get to continue our series in the names of God. So just as a refresher, the last three weeks, Jason has preached about Elohim, Creator God, El Shaddai, the all-powerful God who's able to do the impossible. And then last week, we talked about Adonai, which means my master or my owner. Um, this week, we are talking about the name Jehovah Rapha, God our healer. This is a name of God that hits pretty close to home right now, as we are literally in the midst of this global pandemic. Um, and I just want to acknowledge at the outset that there is a tension in considering this name of God. Because on the one hand, healing is something that we, we desperately need right now. It's a very timely topic. We need the God who heals, the God who restores, the God who mends hearts and casts out disease. But on the other hand, the realities of COVID bring to the fore the difficulty of how to handle those moments when God does not heal, when sickness prevails, when our hearts are broken and not easily mended, when we are traumatized and the triggers stay with us for a lifetime. How can we call God Jehovah Rapha, the God, our healer, then? So before we start, I just want to take a moment to pray and to invite God into this space with us as we dive into his word and seek to know him more fully as Jehovah Rapha. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your presence here with us in this place. Thank you that you are always present with us, fully present, even when we don't feel you, even when we don't acknowledge you. And I just pray for a grace upon us today, God, to be fully present with you as you are with us. I pray for a grace as we consider some heavy topics, um, some topics that might bring uncomfortable thoughts or feelings in some of us. God, I just pray that you would draw near, that you would meet each of us where we are with your love, with your compassion, with your truth, with your reassurance. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today's text is Exodus 15, verses 22 to 27. Um, I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, um, and I believe the words will be up on the screen as well. Um, so this passage comes right after the Israelites have crossed through the Red Sea. So the ten plagues have happened in Egypt, the Egyptian army has been buried in the Red Sea, and now the Israelites are free. And so the first half of chapter 15 is just the Israelites singing and praising God, dancing and celebration. They are just overjoyed. And then we come to this passage, Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. That is why it is called Marah, which means bitter in Hebrew. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he put them to the test. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. 
Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. So after the triumph and victory of escaping from Egypt, the Israelites go straight into the wilderness. They have just witnessed the entire Egyptian army be destroyed in the Red Sea, so they know the Egyptians will not be a problem ever again. But then they run into a bunch of new problems. <laughs> Namely, they are in the desert without water. And when they finally find water, after three days on the brink of dehydration, the water is bitter and undrinkable. At Marah, the water taunts them because it looks so similar to what they need. And it also taunts them because it mirrors their bitter experience in Egypt. They've spent their whole lives as slaves, drinking the water of bitterness. Now they had hoped all that was behind them. They've been celebrating, excited about this new life they've been given. Why would God lead them here, to Marah, to another place of bitterness? You know, as people, we often get caught up focusing on outward circumstances, external circumstances. We tend to measure our lives by accomplishments we can point to. Degrees, jobs, houses, spouses, children, vacations, pictures of us on vacation. When those things aren't really the most important things about who we are. And they're certainly not what God values most about us, great as they can be. We also may not say this out loud, but we often measure God's love for us by external circumstances as well. If things don't go our way, we question whether God cares for us or how much he really cares about us. And I wanna say that there is a validity to that kind of questioning because it matters if God does what he says, if he follows through on what he says he will. But God is often at work in, a, in ways that are not immediately apparent in our external circumstances. It's easy to celebrate and praise God for the Exodus moments, the parting of the Red Sea moments, and to miss the quieter ways that God is at work. We miss what God is doing beneath the surface, and we miss what God is doing amidst the pain. So I believe that one thing God is doing here at Marah, at the place of bitter waters, is that he's actually using external circumstances to point to an internal reality, to bring to the surface some internal realities. The Israelites may have left their bitter outward circumstances, but their hearts are still bitter. Sometimes our circumstances can change in an instant. You can no longer be a slave. We can no longer be required to wear masks indoors, which would be amazing. We can leave a toxic relationship or a toxic workplace, but the scars and the wounds that accumulate in our hearts can take longer to heal. We can leave, but those things still remain. We find again and again in their wilderness journey that the Israelites question God, they question Moses, they complain. And actually, I think that there's a, a good reason for that. The question is understandable because the wounds that from their traumatic experience in Egypt go very deep. Years of trauma cannot be wiped away in an instant. The Israelites suffered for decades under the mistreatment of the Egyptians. You know, Exodus tells us how Pharaoh intentionally set taskmasters over them to oppress them, how those taskmasters became ruthless in their treatment of the Israelites, how they sought to make their lives bitter simply because of how numerous they were. And in order to survive, the Israelites had to shut down parts of themselves. In those kind of situations, you go into self-protective mode, survival mode. That is not a mode in which you are prone to taking risks or stepping out in faith or assuming the best. And God knows this. He understands our hearts better than we do. 
And he knows the secret to mending broken hearts and bitter souls. The first step is bringing those things to the surface. We are all too often quick to ignore our hearts, to pretend that when things are good on the outside, we're also fine on the inside. But God isn't okay with a mere outward change of circumstance. He isn't okay with mere outward external deliverance. He cares about making us whole inside. You know, this pandemic has actually brought a lot of our issues to the surface, perhaps especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Things that we were able to sort of bury inside of us under normal circumstances came to the surface and it was uncomfortable. And I think for many of us, we're just so um, eager for the pandemic to end, for the external circumstances to change. But what God cares even more about, even more than that, is those issues that have come to the surface. The darkest, most broken parts of who we are often make people uncomfortable, even people who love us, even communities that are supposed to be safe. They even make us uncomfortable. But God is not uncomfortable with brokenness. He's not intimidated by our darkness. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God is actually drawn to our brokenness. The Israelites are used to drinking the water of bitterness, and even outside the land of Egypt, effects of that bitterness remain. But God is at work in the wilderness, in the discomfort of their thirst, in the unknown of this new chapter, in this reminder of their trauma. He is at work, bringing to the surface, surface issues inside of them that need to be addressed. He is at work changing the bitter to sweet. So how does God change the bitter to sweet? Well, here in this passage, Moses cries out to God and God shows him this piece of wood that sweetens the water. And I think it is um, important to note that Moses, this part of Moses crying out to God, it's always a good idea to cry out to God in our distress. And I do believe that God is faithful to answer. But when it comes to especially inner healing, it's usually not as quick and as simple as just throwing a piece of wood and we're just done. The healing process can be quite slow. It's usually made up of many moments of crying out to God, many moments of feeling confused, of wrestling with doubt and regret, and it looks different for each person in each circumstance. But I do wanna draw attention to some specific ways that we see God bringing healing here in the second part of the passage, starting in the second part of verse 25. Um, and it might surprise you to hear me say that because the second part of this passage at first can seem like this dry, rigid sort of speech. God is laying out rules and expectations. And as Jason mentioned last week, we don't usually like encountering the side of God, this authoritarian side. We like God's soft and gentle side. Uh, we like to think of freedom as the ability to set our own rules. We don't like being told what to do. But actually, this too is part of God's healing work. Because first, in laying out this statute and this ordinance, God makes his expectations clear. God brings clarity. And in clarity, there is safety. Tyrants don't do this. Dictators don't do this. Part of the way that abusive leaders maintain control is by withholding information. This keeps people living in constant fear and anxiety, never knowing what will happen next. That's how, exactly how the Israelites were brutalized by the Egyptians. They were never sure when, the, when Pharaoh might change the quota for bricks. They were never sure when he might decide to murder all of their baby boys like he did with Moses' generation. 
A very real part of the stress of this pandemic has simply been its unpredictability. The rules are constantly changing. Not even just laws, but social etiquette. We don't know when another variant will pop up. We don't know when our plans might be disrupted. We don't know what tensions might arise at our family gathering. That is very anxiety-inducing. And part of the reason that relationship with God is so stabilizing and reassuring is because God is steady and consistent, and he is upfront about who he is. God doesn't rule by fear or by terror. There's no game playing, no tricks. He makes his expectations clear. He lays out his standards explicitly. So in this passage, he doesn't just solve their problem. He doesn't just change the water from bitter to sweet, but he explains it. He doesn't leave it up to interpretation what this means. He says, I will be your God if you will follow me. There is safety in that. And safety is exactly what we need in order to heal. So we see God bringing healing through the safety of clear communication. Second, we see here that God frames these commands as a choice. He says, if. Now, in other places of the Bible, God does not say if. God <laughs> phrases his commands as imperatives. And actually, a few weeks ago, Jason preached on one of those passages. We were looking at Genesis 17, where God says to Abram, walk before me faithfully. But here, God says, if. And that if is very important. It communicates that the Israelites have the power to choose which is exactly what they don't know how to do anymore. Because as slaves in Egypt, they were powerless. They had no control, they had no real choices. There was nothing they could do to better their situation. There was nothing they could do to win Pharaoh over. And when you're in a situation like that, when you are powerless, you forget how to have agency. It's called learned powerlessness. You forget what it means to have free will. You like lose touch of what it is that you even want because what you want doesn't matter for so long. Even when you leave that situation, you still feel powerless because you've become so conditioned to being controlled. So here, it's very significant that God actually reminds them they have the ability to make choices and to have an effect on their own lives, even when it comes to their relationship with him. God says, if you listen carefully and if you do what is right in my sight, and he's communicating that they have the power and ability to choose rightly, and also that they have the freedom to choose. God doesn't beat them and force them to do what he wants, which is what their slave masters did. He extends his hand and invites them. God says, this is the right thing, this is what you should choose, but it's always our choice, and that is huge. Because this means that we actually have the opportunity to have an active, role in our relationship with God. And this is one of these beautiful tensions that I love about God, is that on the one hand, he has this unconditional love, this agape love that's so reassuring, that reassures us that even when we fail, even when we choose wrongly, even when we lose sight of God, who God is, God's love is reaching out for us and his grace can catch us. But on the other hand, God gives us choices that affect our relationship with him and affect our lives. God saves us, but not in a way that leaves us powerless, without choice. He gives us space to learn to walk with him, so that he's not just carrying us along the journey, but we get to learn to walk with him. When we go through difficult experiences, we often feel powerless. Many of us have felt powerless at different times during this pandemic, because the suffering or negative outcome is not what we would have chosen. We didn't choose that. 
But Jehovah Rapha wants to remind us that even when we feel powerless, there are still choices within our control. The choice to cry out to him. The choice to listen to his advice and follow it. The choice to seek out community or therapy or to ask for help. And simply knowing that we have a choice restores a little bit of our souls. So here we see God bringing clarity and restoring the ability to choose, restoring agency. Third, we see in these few verses that God uncovers and names the Israelites' underlying fear. So in verse 26, God says, If you heed my commandments, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians. I just want to acknowledge that this verse could be read as a veiled threat, but if we look at other passages in the Old Testament, there are many places where God lays out the positive and negative repercussions. So he says, if you follow me, I will bless you. If you rebel against me, I will curse you. And I think it's significant that here, he only mentions the positive side because he knows that what Israel needs right now is reassurance. He pinpoints one of the Israelites' key unspoken fears here as well. The Israelites have just witnessed God rain down terror on the Egyptians through the 10 plagues. And in the back of their minds, they're probably wondering, well, God did that to them. How do I know God won't do that to us at some point? It's terrifying following a God who is all-powerful. And God uncovers that fear. And he says, you know, he says that basically he's acknowledging, like, it's okay to have that fear and bringing this up. Because sometimes it's, we can know things in our head, but it's harder to know them in our hearts, especially if we've been through something difficult. God says he is their God, but on a gut level, the Israelites are still afraid, and he knows this. He knows they need this added reassurance. So he calls it out, and he names it. He names their fear. There's a healing power simply in naming our fears and our anxieties, because when you name them, you're able to face them and process them. When you don't name them, it's easy for them to reside in your subconscious and control you in ways you're not aware of. So God names it. He brings it to the surface. I know you're afraid that I'm going to bring diseases on you. And he makes a promise that speaks directly to that fear. God is not afraid of our questions, our doubts, or our bitterness. He wants to enter into our pain and restore relationship and trust. He wants to enter into those places and reveal himself in a deeper way. Because the most beautiful part to me of this passage is that God not only makes this promise, but he reveals a new name to Israel, Jehovah Rapha. I am God, your healer. And it's interesting how there are certain ways that we can only experience God's love in dark places. And so I'm not saying that we should pursue darkness on purpose, but there's just a certain side of God, a certain side of his love that we only get to experience in brokenness. And we see that here in this passage. In this time, in this moment of vulnerability, in this moment of fear, they get to experience God's comfort and God's reassurance, and they get to learn who God is as healer. A few years ago, I was in a very broken place. My life had turned upside down. I was confused about my future, bitter about my past, and weak and debilitated in the present. And worst of all, I was uncertain whether I could trust God. 
Throughout my whole life and every difficulty, God had always been my rock, that safe place that I could run to. He was the cleft of the rock that I could hide in. But after spending seven years at a church where leaders used the name of God to manipulate and control me, where they used the name of God to create a culture of fear and silence and shame, my relationship with God was shaken. I still knew the right answers. I still knew that God was with me, that God loved me. But my gut and my heart couldn't trust God anymore. And I made a decision in that season to move back in with my mom for a period, which was very humbling. But I knew that I needed that. But even though I left that situation, the brokenness and the issues inside were very much there. And in that season, God said to me one of the strangest things he has ever said to me, which was, you don't have to love me. My first reaction was, I do, because if I don't, that would just be foolish and dumb. I know that your way is the right way, and to not love you, to not choose you, wouldn't make any sense. And I also felt like, you know what, God, I've lost my vision for the future. I've lost my community that was everything to me. If I turn my back on you, I'll have nothing. But what I realized was that God was saying that because he was showing me that I have a choice. He was reteaching me these basic things about freedom and love. Love is not forced. God was showing me he would never coerce me or threaten me into doing something. He would never shame me for being broken or weak. And knowing that I was free to choose him was the first step in restoring my relationship with him. All too often in the places that are supposed to be safe, we encounter a fixation on outward performance. We can encounter it in our own families. We can encounter it in the church. Sometimes we especially find it in the church. As humans, we just fall into this trap of putting up a facade and encouraging others to do the same, of communicating, usually in unspoken ways, that what we want is just a nice exterior. Well, guess what? God doesn't want a picture-perfect church. He doesn't want followers who look like they have it all together, who feel this pressure to maintain appearances. God looks at our hearts, and he cares about the well-being of our hearts, and he wants a community that cares about that as well. The other thing that I realized was when God said, you don't have to love me, was that he was saying, I will still love you. He was saying, my love for you is not dependent on your ability to love me. I know what you've been through. I know that you're broken right now and that you just can't love me in the way that you want to. But I'm still going to be here, and I'm still going to be loving you. God doesn't use shame tactics. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't wield his authority through intimidation. He restores our dignity and our choice. He brings clarity and consistency into our chaos. He uncovers our, our fears, and he speaks reassurance and comfort to them. He doesn't despise us for our doubts or our weakness or brokenness. He is faithful to walk with us through the long journey of turning the bitter to sweet. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. And you know what that means? It means it's okay to not be okay. Recognizing that we are not okay is actually the first step toward wholeness. 
Sometimes we ask why. Why didn't God heal this person of the, their illness? Why didn't God answer our prayer? Why does God allow terrible things to happen? Why did God allow me to be hurt? Why is this pandemic stretching on and on? And there aren't easy answers to these questions. But one thing I know is that these unanswered prayers, those traumas, those places of deepest pain and confusion are not the end. Even death is not the end, not with God. And asking those questions is 100% okay. Jesus himself cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pain is real, the trauma is real, the learned powerlessness is real, but it is in that very place of doubt, cynicism, and bitterness that God desires to meet us and to reveal himself to us as Jehovah Rapha, God our healer. So will you have the courage to allow God to bring to the surface things in your heart that need to be addressed? Will you have the courage to reach out to others for help, to reach out in honest communication with others about where you're at? There's an invitation in our brokenness and pain to allow God to lead us on a journey toward wholeness. Because the truth is that all of us, we're only gonna experience full wholeness in the next life when we're with Jesus. But in the meantime, we get to experience this, the specific side of God's love. In our brokenness, we get to experience a, a side of God's love that we sometimes call mercy, and we sometimes call grace. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your kindness and your tenderness. I thank you that you are a God of strength, a God of clarity, a God who is unchanging, and yet who is better than we can understand. I thank you that there is always more for us to understand of who you are. And I just pray right now, God, for, especially for anyone in this room or listening online who is in a place of brokenness, who feels alone, who is afraid. God, I pray that you would meet them in that place, that you would help them know that they are not alone, that you would give them the courage to come out of hiding. God, I thank you that your heart burns for us, especially when we are in those places of brokenness and need. And that you love to rescue us, but not only to rescue us, but to teach us and to reteach us how to walk with you. How to be the people of God, how to be your sons and daughters. And I just pray that you would help us not only experience you in our brokenness, but grow to be more like you in being able to embrace and love others in their brokenness as well. I pray that you would increase our ability to love, to be patient, to be compassionate. That we would be people filled with wisdom and filled with your love. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see, God, your eyes to see our lives and our our situations and who we are from your perspective, that you would remove 
the pressures that are put on us by this world, that you would remove the expectations of others that are, uh, that are stifling us, and that you would restore to us clear vision of what matters to you, of what truly matters, and of how proud you are of us, of how much you delight in us, of how much you just love being with us, God. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.